The Bob Murphy Show, episode 264. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this episode i'm going to be talking about the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank and the Fed's moves to shore it up and just how should we think about these things. So for those of you who have heard my commentary on other places, in particular, the episode I did in the Human Action Podcast with Jeff Deist, some of this is going to be redundant, but some of it's going to be brand spanking new, so don't worry. Also, let me just mention as a caveat, for some of these issues, some of you who are like super econ geeks, you're going to say, oh, man, you stopped short. But I'm telling you, with all this stuff, I was walking around, and I was like channeling Fisher Black. Like, with all these issues, like, you can really push it. And by the end of it, you're wondering, what does it even mean to be a person? Who am I? What is money? And so, believe me, there's, like, it's not that, oh, if you had just gone 20 more minutes, Bob, then you could have solved all these things. I'm telling you, the harder you pushed in all these different threads... There was no end in sight. So I decided, you know what? Instead of agonizing about, gee, oh, well, I got to cover this. I got to cover this. I just said, you know what? I'm just going to hit record, start going, and hopefully this will help. This will at least save you some time in case you've been musing on these things too. Maybe I can clear some of the brush. Okay, but before we do that, let me do something really basic because this helped me when I was a younger lad just to really understand what was going on. So when they say, very matter of factly, oh, when interest rates rise, bond prices fall, or when interest rates fall, bond prices rise. And it's very intuitive once you understand what's going on. But if you haven't thought it through or had someone explain it to you, it might just be sort of mysterious, right? So it's, let me just do a simple example. So imagine you have an asset that throws off $1,000 every year, right? So if you own this asset, it pays you $1,000 a year, whether it's like a bond or an apartment complex or, you know, whatever, or your portion of an apartment complex. It'd be pretty cheap apartment complex if that's all I threw off, right? But this thing predictably, reliably yields you, the owner, $1,000 payment every year going forward indefinitely. That's key. All right. So now what's the market price of that asset or what's the most you would be willing to pay for it? So you need to know what the interest rate is, the relevant interest rate. And so suppose it's 5%. How much should you be willing to pay? I'm going to suggest the answer is $20,000. And the way to see that is if you had $20,000 sitting in an account that was paying you 5% a year, what would that payment be? Well, 10% of 20,000 is 2,000. So 5% is only 1,000. So 5% of $20,000 is $1,000, right? And so I kind of went the other way to show, oh yeah, if you had something that was $20,000 in value, spot price, and you earn 5% a year on it, your earnings would be $1,000 a year. So going the other way, if I'm telling you this asset throws off $1,000 a year 
in earnings for whoever owns it, and right now interest rates are 5%, then the capitalized spot price of that thing is $20,000, right? Again, that's really because if you had $20,000 to play with and you know interest rates are 5%, that means you know, oh yeah, I could invest my money, put it to work earning 5% a year. That's what it means to say the going market rate of interest is 5%. And so if you had $20,000 right now, that would generate for you, yield for you $1,000 a year. So if I'm telling you, oh, there's this asset over here that happens to throw off $1,000 a year, well, then its price right now must be 20000 Okay, what if now I'm telling you, oh, wait, interest rates actually are 10%. Now, how much would you be willing to pay for this asset that yields a $1,000 payment every year forever? And now the answer is, oh, you'd only pay $10,000 for that thing. Because again, to say interest rates are 10% means if you had $10,000 to play with and you invested it to earn you 10% a year, that would be throwing off $1,000 a year. Okay, so that's why in particular, this asset that when interest rates are 5%, the thing was worth 20,000, you would be silly to pay $20,000 for that right now if interest rates are 10%, because if interest rates are 10% and you have $20,000, you wouldn't buy that asset with it. You would go invest it to earn you the 10% a year, in bonds or something, and you'd be getting $2,000 a year, right? If you had $20,000 to play with and interest rates are 10% now, if you invested that at the going rate of interest, you'd be getting $2,000 a year. Okay, so it'd be silly for you to pay 20000 for this original asset we've been talking about in this thought experiment that, by assumption, only throws off $1,000 a year. Okay, so that's why, you know, big picture, again, originally interest rates are 5%. So this is the key thing. The asset we're talking about, it's not that it pays a percentage. No, by construction, what this asset does is the owner of this thing gets $1,000 every year forever. Make sure you get that point down. All right, so it's not that it yields a percentage. What happens is this thing, what it does for you is it entitles you to a $1,000 payment every year forever. And now I'm saying, depending on the market rate of interest, the capitalized purchase price of this thing can change. So if interest rates right now happen to be 5%, then how much someone would pay for this thing is $20,000. And so let's say you paid $20,000 and you acquired it. And now, oops, interest rates rise to 10%. And by the way, it has to be unexpected. Like if you knew interest rates were going to rise, you would have taken that into account. So for this thought experiment, technically we're saying the one-year interest rate right now is 5%. And we expect the one-year interest rate going forward to be 5% forever also. And then we're shocked to discover it jumps to 10%. Doing all this, obviously, folks, to keep the math simple. So again, that's what's going on. That's why if interest rates in this particular example doubled from 5% to 10%, the market price of that asset would get cut in half. It would go from $20,000 down to $10,000. And again, it's very intuitive because just think through how much would you be willing to pay to acquire that cash flow? And when interest rates are 10%, you wouldn't pay more than $10,000 for that thing because you could just take your $10,000 and invest it at 10% and get $1,000 that way. So if what this asset is, is a thing that entitles you to $1,000 a year, the most you would pay is 10000 Because if you had to pay more for that, you'd be losing money. You'd make better by going investing that elsewhere. Okay, so that's why, big picture, someone who originally spent $20,000 to acquire this cash flow and then interest rates double sees the market price of that asset get cut in half. Now, it's kind of weird because you think, oh, gee, you just lost $10,000 in a sense, right? 
you pay $20,000 for this asset. Next Thursday, interest rates all of a sudden go from 5 to 10%. And so now I'm saying the market value of that thing gets cut in half from $20,000 down to 10000 So there's a sense in which you lost 10000 But there's also a sense in which, so long as you hang on to that asset, the cash flows you receive are the same as they were before. So this is a critical point. It's not that, oh, geez, I bought this thing and I overpaid for it because I thought I was going to get $1,000 a year and it turns out I'm only going to get 600 No, you still are getting $1,000 a year. So the problem with your investment wasn't that actually you misforecast what the cash flows would be. It's just you misforecast what the interest rate was going to be. All right, so by assumption in this one, we're saying, no, you still are getting $1,000 a year. And so it's kind of weird that if you hang on to this asset, if that was your original plan, there's a sense in which you're not hurt. Well, do you care what interest rates did? You bought this asset because you wanted to get $1,000 a year and you still are getting $1,000 a year. All right, so in absolute terms, if you want to think of it that way, you're not hurt. But relative to where you could have been had you had better foresight, you're hurt right? Because you shouldn't have locked yourself into that. If you knew interest rates were going to jump from 5 to 10% next Thursday, at the very least you would have waited or you would have bought the asset with you know, hedging yourself or something. You would have done something else. Okay. That's the idea. So incidentally, let me just mention the math works out there where the moves in the interest rate are inversely proportional to the purchase price of the asset. That's only strictly true if it's an infinitely lived asset, right? So, in, you know, the numbers I picked there, I was showing, oh, if the thing paid 1,000 a year, then when interest rates are 5%, it's valued at 20,000. When interest rates double, its price gets cut in half. In general, that's not true because most assets don't yield a stream of cash forever. I just picked that example because it makes the math nice and easy. Like, for example, I'll just give you a specific you know, you can go play with this stuff. There's an online bond price calculators. So I plugged in, if you've got a bond that's got a face, and also you should know this just to so you understand how bonds work. Okay, so in general, what happens, like if you buy a bond, let's say it's a 20-year bond. Oh, wait, actually, no, this one example, I picked a 10-year bond. Okay, and so they can talk about the face value. So what happens is originally when the bond is issued, you pay, if it's a longer-term bond, with coupons, you pay the face value. So if it's $1,000 face value, you give $1,000 to the bond issuer because they're borrowing money, right? So you're paying them money up front for it. That's why they're issuing the bond because they need to borrow money. They're going into debt. And then you hold that bond and then it has a coupon payment. And I think they call it that because back in the day, like you literally had pieces of paper that you would rip off. You know, you would clip coupons and turn it in and get your periodic payment. Nowadays, it's electronic and the vast majority of things. You're not literally tearing off coupons, but they still call it that. And it's the nomenclature, like this one, it says annual coupon rate. And I had it at 5%. So what that's saying is every year, it makes a 5% payment on that. So it's 50 bucks, right? So this particular construction, I have, okay, you give $1,000 up front every year, the borrower pays you $50 in interest effectively. And then after 10 years upon maturity, they give you $1,000 principal back. All right. And so you've clipped 10 coupons to get the $50 payments along the way. And then it gives you back. Okay. So that assumed interest rates were 5% at the time of issuance. And if they stayed that way throughout, that would be fine. 
you're earning 5% a year on the $1,000, and then they just give you the principal back after the 10-year span, and that's it. And so if the market rate of interest throughout that whole span is also 5%, well, then what's the price of that bond up front? It's $1,000. But now what happens if instead I had the same numbers, like the features of the bond, the parameters, but I make the market rate of interest jump from 5% to 10%? Well, the price of the bond drops, but it doesn't go all the way down to 500, right? If this were an infinite bond, and by the way, such things used to exist in the you know, heyday of the British Empire, they were called consoles, C-O-N-S-O-L, that the British government would issue. I don't know if companies issued them, but the British government would. So you would effectively be lending money to the British government, and then they would be paying you interest on that, and the deal was just forever. Like, there was no period of the loan. It wasn't like they gave you the principal back after a certain amount. It was just, no, you forever were handing over your principal, and they were giving you the payments. I think it's because because of inflation that that practice started. I think like once the age of fiat money was upon us after World War I, governments, even quote, responsible governments, major powers, debased the currency too easily or the temptation was there that people knew like, no, I'm not just giving you, their time horizons were shorter. That's what I'm getting at. Okay. Such that nowadays, like, there's 30-year U.S. treasuries, but there's not 200-year U.S. treasuries, and there's certainly not infinite U.S. treasuries. Okay, so anyway, the, I don't know if I actually said this, what's the price, using my handy-dandy online bond price calculator, so again, it's a face value of 1000 the coupon rate is 5%, so they're paying you $50 a year, and then after 10 years, they give you the 1000 back. If interest rates are 10%, market rates of interest are 10%, the spot price of that bond is $692.77. So it didn't get cut in half when the interest rate doubled, but it's still, you know, it's 69% and change. So not as low as 50%, but, and if I made it, let's see if I can do this. If I make it a 20-year bond, what happens? Yeah. Okay, so the price if the extended maturity of 20 years, the price goes down to 574 and 32 cents. Okay. And just to do one more, what if it was a 30 year bond? Then it goes down to $528.65. So in the limit, if you extended it as N goes to infinity, that bond price would drop down to 500. Because again, I'm building in the fact that the coupon payments are only $50, whereas the market rate of interest is 10%. And what's happening there is the further out you push the redemption, the maturity of the bond, that $1,000 lump sum is getting discounted more heavily the further you're pushing out. It's basically you're just turning this into what's the present discounted value of a stream of $50 payments. That's what's going on. And so in the limit, an infinite stream of $50 payments and 10% interest rate is $500. Okay, so big picture though, the point is in general, bonds... Yes, it's always the case that when interest rates go up, bond prices go down, but it's not like a perfect percentage inverse movement unless you had a bond that was infinitely lived. That the shorter the maturity of the bond, the less sensitive it is to interest rate risk. All right. So with Silicon Valley, you know, now we're back to the real world, kids. With Silicon Valley Bank, the reason they got hit so hard. It was a two-pronged thing. On the one hand, 
they specialized, they did business with a lot of tech companies and startups. And so those are the kinds of businesses where when interest rates are low, they look very attractive, right? Because, you know, you're, oh, I'm some firm, I'm working on AI and drones and blah, blah, blah. And so it's a kind of thing where you fund a hundred of those kind of startups and a few of them are going to be home runs. Most of them will, will fizzle out, but a few of them are going to be home runs. And so that makes sense when interest rates are low, because effectively a dollar today is not so much better than a dollar 20 years from now when interest rates are at rock bottom levels. And so since what those startups are doing is they're putting a lot of investment up front for the promise down the road of a big payout. And so that's a better bet, if you will, when interest rates are very low. But so that interest rates were rising. And so in 2022, in particular, a lot of the venture capitalist funding of these startups dried up. And so these companies that had account balances held at Silicon Valley Bank started drawing them down just to, you know, to pay their the salaries of their employees and other expenses because, you know, they still have to keep the lights on and stuff, even if a lot of the people are put in so-called sweat equity. They still have expenses. And so a lot of them were drawing down their balances at SVP. So in 2022, SVP had more withdrawals than the typical bank did. Not because people smelled blood in the water or thought SVP was in trouble, but just because it just so happened the demographics of their customer base were losing their outside funding sources. And so they had to draw down their balances with SVP. The other problem was SVP put a lot of their funds into treasuries, which are called the safest asset in the world, but they were longer dated ones. And so of their portfolio that it was called the hold to maturity portfolio, the duration was something like 6.2 years. All right. So in other words, on average, like a dollar weighted average, the bonds that they held in that portfolio, even though they were very safe in terms of default risk, they were not safe in terms of interest rate risk. And again, that's a crucial distinction. So it's an interesting thing where, like in the housing bubble years, as you know, I'm sure a lot of lenders got into trouble because they originated mortgages in cases where they really shouldn't have. Like the buyer didn't have good credit and whatever. And the originator was kind of just hoping, well, we're not hoping, but just saying, worst case scenario, we're in a rising market even if the person defaults on the loan, we'll just take the collateral, which is the house, and we're fine because the home prices are rising at double-digit rates. Who cares? We'll just flip it. Big deal. And especially though they could sell it off to somebody. Like they, you know, the originator didn't care. Like, we're not even going to hang out of this thing for very long. We're going to sell it to some Wall Street firm that's going to take it and slice it and dice it and sell it. pieces of this mortgage to Chinese investors. Who cares? S&P signs off on it. Moody signs off on it. Great. Who cares? Let's go get a martini. So you can understand how, oops, once the housing market crashed, why that was a blunder and they were all in trouble. With SVP, it's again, it's kind of funny that they were investing in what's called the safest asset in the world. And even if you think that's a silly label, their problem was not that the treasury defaulted on them. And it wasn't even inflation in the sense of, oh, yeah, sure, they got paid back nominally, but they couldn't even go buy a loaf of bread with it. No, that wasn't even the issue. The issue was the Fed raising interest rates aggressively. I guess, more than they thought was going to happen when they loaded up on all those long-term treasuries. And so then they got stuck. So again, it's they would have been okay 
it wouldn't have been catastrophic if they could have just held on to those bonds, right? Because I'm going to remember to the thing we, I talked about in the beginning of the episode where if you bought the asset that's paying $1,000 a year, so long as you don't sell the thing, in a sense, it's just a paper loss, right? You paid 24, the market price dropped to 10. But if you just hang on to the thing, you're still getting your $1,000 payments. You suffer an opportunity cost in the sense if you had just waited for your 20000 you could have now been getting $2,000 a year if you had just held out a little bit for interest rates to double. But still, you're in absolute terms getting what you thought you were going to get okay. But the same thing with SVP. If they could have just held on to those bonds, they would have gotten the coupon payments they were expecting and they would have had their principal returned to them. So we think, because you know, for all we know, there's going to be civil war in 18 months. and Maybe the treasury will default. So far as market participants anticipated, SVP was going to get its principal back, but they didn't want to wait for it. People were showing up saying, we want our money now. This is a demand deposit. Our checking account with you. Give me my money. And so that's why they were in trouble. So they had to start selling off their bonds and then realizing the losses. So the U.S. banking system as a whole has something like $600 billion plus in unrealized losses on, I think that figure includes treasuries and also mortgage-backed securities. It actually might just be treasuries. Now I'm thinking about it. All right. But that doesn't mean every bank suffered, this, you know, because if they can just hold it, then they're, you know, they can kind of get out of it. So that's what's going on there. Okay. So now what did the Fed with FDIC and all that, what did they do? So they wanted to stop contagion. And so they set up this new lending facility. And the deal is they're pledging you can borrow. Uh, I think for up to a year, I think it's in the 90 days up to a year, the Fed will lend against suitable collateral like treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, other agency debt. And the trick is the Fed will value it at par. And so what that means is, go back to that example I just went over a few minutes ago. And if a bank paid, you know, they bought a 20-year bond, treasury, and they paid $1,000 for it, when interest rates were 5% and now interest rates doubled to 10%. So we've seen the value of that thing. I think it was 600 something, right? It's like 625 might be getting the numbers off a little bit, but it was 600 something, I believe, is how that, you know, if they were to sell that bond in the market, instead of getting their $1,000 that they originally paid, they would only get 600 and something for it. So the Fed is going to lend them up to $1,000 on that. And then they just pledge that as collateral. So if the bank defaults on its loan from the Fed, the Fed will come in and take the bond, right? So it's just understand the mechanics of it. The Fed is not buying the bond right now in this example. Instead, they're technically lending against it and the bond is collateral. But again, the critical thing is the Fed is allowing them to say, well, how much collateral is it? The Fed is valuing it at par, right? So that's the element where people are debating, is that a bailout or not? Or you know, how do we think about that? So the people arguing that it is a bailout are saying, well, of course it is because the market value of this bond is, let's say it's 620 and the Fed's lending a thousand against it. So isn't that a bailout? Now the defenders of the move are saying, no, it's not really in any event, nobody's at risk. Certainly not the taxpayer or the dollar holder is they're saying because worst case scenario, that bank defaults, the Fed takes the bond as payment and now the Fed, you might say, well, gee, the Fed lent a thousand and it only got something that's worth six twenty. But no, the Fed's just gonna hang on to it. 
And eventually that thing will mature to be worth a thousand. The treasury will pay the thousand on it and the Fed gets paid back. So it might have to wait, but there's no doubt that it's going to get paid on that. So that's not going to lose money. It's not like it's losing $380 or whatever. Okay, so that's what I want to focus on, that element. Actually, before I get into that, because it's kind of the big issue, let me just mention, so Walter Badgett, I think is how you pronounce his name, even though it looks like Bagahot or Bagahot, I think it's Badgett, was a famous commentator on central banking matters, financial matters in England in the late 1800s. And so he had a lot of famous adages. And one of them was to say that in times of crisis, the function of the central bank is to lend freely on good collateral, but at a high rate of discount. Or I think in some versions, they even say like at a penalty rate. Okay, so here, the rationale, like it or not, was that, yes, the central bank can be a lender of last resort, but the idea was in an economic or financial crisis, some firms are illiquid, but they're still solvent. So what's the difference? A firm that is solvent means its assets are worth more than its liabilities. It's not bankrupt, right? There's still net equity in the company. It's just that their cash flow is bad, right? That they need to pay their creditors or some of their liabilities in terms of the cash flow are coming due now, whereas the assets are still locked up and they haven't yielded their fruits, even though the present discounted value of their assets exceeds the present discounted value of their liabilities. So it makes economic sense for this firm to continue in existence. It's a rational economic unit, but it's hitting a financing problem. And in normal times, somebody would come in and just lend to it. But if there's a crisis going on where everybody's all clammed up, the idea is all the private sector can't, it's seized up. And that's the role of the central bank to come in and to lend to the solvent but illiquid firms at a high rate of discount or a penalty rate. And that's the point, right? That the reason you want to do it at a high interest rate is to make sure it's only genuinely viable enterprises that even go to the central bank to get the loan. What you don't want is a company that's insolvent where it's truly bankrupt, where the liabilities have a higher value than the assets, those firms should just shut down. They're not contributing to the economy. They should just be broken up and then, you know, they're not viable enterprises. And so you don't want to lend them money to keep them going. You want them to fail and stop. Workers need to stop going there. Resources need to stop getting channeled into those factories or whatever. Okay, so that was Badgett's rationale. He said, yes, the central bank should lend freely on good collateral but at a high rate of discount or at a penalty rate. So in modern times, that typically is thrown out the window. For one thing, the high rate of discount is out. You know, in the 08 crisis, the Fed pushed interest rates down to almost 0%. So that certainly wasn't following that dictum. And now in this crisis, people are asking, what about that other clause about, like, so the Fed's certainly not charging a super high rate of interest to really separate the wheat from the chaff. But what about the part about on good collateral? So here it's a little bit ambiguous, right? That what these banks are pledging for this new borrowing facility from the Fed, there's a sense in which it's good collateral, right? It's not that they're putting up junk bonds or other things that are very risky, but the element is how 
the Fed is valuing them. That's the part where is it right to say it's good collateral or not? So I suspect that Badgett, if he saw the situation, would say, well, no, that's not what I meant. That's crazy. Because again, it kind of defeats the purpose. If you are, in a sense, overvaluing the collateral, then you're helping firms that made poor decisions, right? If the point is to provide liquidity for those firms that are genuinely viable enterprises, you wouldn't want to, in a sense, put your thumb on the scales and overvalue their assets more than with how the market values them. So even there, it's not so cut and dry because the defender of the move could argue, hey, the reason, well, I'm going to stick to my guns on that one. Because what happened back in the OA crisis was once there was a panic and then as the contagion spread, the idea is, oh no, each new investment bank, as they come under fire, you know, they have to start selling off their mortgage-backed securities because the previous ones did it. Now there's margin calls and blah, blah, blah. And so the more that they were selling them, the more that those things took a hit. And now, oh shoot, now the market price of these mortgage-backed securities is going down even more. So now the next investment firm, which was okay two days ago, now because prices have been pushed down so much in these fire sales, now their portfolio just got hit. And now they need to raise more you know, a higher margin, make a margin call for their creditors. So they have to sell, you know, so it was like this vicious spiral. And so the thinking was, or the rationale was, oh, if the Fed comes in and just starts buying those things at par, they'll prop up the market and it'll be like a self-fulfilling prophecy that if the Fed's coming in and saying, no, these mortgage-backed securities are worth what you thought they were worth a month ago, then they will be. And so this, you know, it fixes itself. Here, it's a little bit different. It's not that everybody is spooked and there's a massive fire sale of treasuries and that's why the price of something that was originally 1000 dipped down to 620 It's not because of massive selling due to irrational fear. It's because, no, that's what the interest rates are. Like, that's the, that's the correct price, textbook present discount valuation of those cash flows. So there, it's not that the market is valuing those assets at a low amount out of fear and if the central bank comes in acting as the lender of last resort, the fear subsides, and then all of a sudden the assets rise and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or there's multiple equilibria. That's not really what's going on here. That if the Fed is valuing those bonds at 100 or at 1,000 when the market's valuing them at 620, given the interest rates that the Fed has tinkered with the stuff the Fed controls in order to make those the relevant market rates of interest right now, then I think there is a genuine sense in which the Fed is just giving a subsidy to those particular firms. Okay, so I think it is a violation of Badgett's dictum to, you know, lend freely on good collateral, the, the sense of good collateral. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know enough about it to say definitively. It would not surprise me, though, if it were hard to pin down to go back to what the conditions were when he was writing to say, oh, was there ever a situation in which interest rates rose rapidly so that there was a huge markdown in the price of bonds, even though they were still very safe bonds. And that's why a bunch of firms were in trouble. It wouldn't surprise me if they just didn't have an example of that because back on the gold standard days, things weren't so volatile. I don't think interest rates moved as rapidly as they do now. And so it, it may just be that we don't know what Badgett would have thought about this kind of scenario because it never happened. I could be wrong, but that wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. Just like as some of you may know, my doctoral dissertation was on the work of Eugen von Bombavark. And in his work, it's not clear 
the distinction between the real rate of interest and the nominal rate of interest, even though that's kind of a basic thing nowadays that, you know, Irving Fisher stressed and Bumbavrik wrote a lot of words on interest rates, but that distinction, I don't know that he ever made it anywhere. And I think part of the reason is back in the day before World War I, price inflation rates weren't that high, except for, you know, wartime. But in general, so the difference between what we would call the real rate of interest and the nominal rate wasn't that big. And so I think that might partly be why Mbavri didn't make that a major component of his analysis was, say, oh, hey, incidentally, I think what he was writing about was the real rate of interest, like the essence of what he was talking about in terms of present goods exchange for future goods. To me, that's got to be the real rate of interest. But he never called it that or, or even German equivalents of that. And I, again, I think it's because it wasn't a thing to him back then. So why would he? Okay. So back now to the central question. So does that constitute a bailout? And if so, what's the nature of the bailout? So what I want you to do is avoid the trap. You don't want to think of it as, oh no, if the Fed's lending on good collateral, that's one thing. So like these bonds right now are valued at 620. And if the Fed just lent up to 620 for them, then it would be okay but if it lends beyond that, there's some qualitatively different thing going on. And that's, I mean, no, because ultimately the Fed is lending money. There's no such thing as a perfectly safe piece of collateral. That's what I'm trying to get at. All of this stuff involves judgment. So it's just always a matter of degree, right? That even if the Fed were to lend right now, the bonds that are worth, let's say 620, the bank paid a thousand for it. The bond right now, given interest rates of 620, if the Fed lent them up to $620 and they pledged that bond as collateral, well, interest rates could go up next Thursday. And so now all of a sudden that collateral that was worth $620 could drop down to $400. There's nothing magical about, oh, lending it at what the collateral is worth right now. It could still turn into an under-collateralized loan and snap of the fingers. All right, so there's that element. The Treasury could default, right? So... Again, it's not that there's some economic magic thing that happens. It's just, but you say, oh, so you're saying it's irrelevant? No, I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but my point is really what it is is just the terms that they normally would make that loan upon, right? So the difference between a collateralized loan or a secured loan and an unsecured one. And so if the Fed would not normally just lend money to an operation without collateral, there's a sense in which it's giving a 40% unsecured loan and the kind of example that we've been walking through. And so that's a subsidy just as if they were to do that for some other company and just give them an unsecured loan if they wouldn't normally do that. As far as what are the economic ramifications, in general, like forget the Fed for a moment, just in general, if you're a financier, if you have money and you're going out and, and there's a crisis and you're lending and you show favoritism to one type of firm, and you lend on better terms than you would to somebody else, I mean, you're putting your money at risk. And maybe you want to do that, but I'm just saying there is a cost there. And so likewise with the Fed, if the idea is normally they wouldn't do that or they could just focus on giving loans to people that had the genuine collateral, those would be safer, right? They would have more collateral to show for the loan. So where it would come into play in particular is if the person defaults, the borrower defaults, the Fed takes the collateral, well, it makes a difference, right? It makes a difference if the Fed is holding, if they've paid 
a thousand for something that's really only worth 600 is what I'm getting at. Right. And that, that makes a difference. And specifically where the Fed could get into trouble in terms of like, well, yeah, this is kind of esoteric. Ultimately, with all this stuff, it's relative, right? If they should have only paid 620 for an asset that has a market price of 620, but instead they paid a thousand, there's a sense in which is right off the bat, regardless of whether the person pays it off or not, there's been a transfer to that borrower. Okay. And so if the Fed effectively created more money in order to do that than they needed to, or than they would have had to do to get an equivalent asset. In other words, if, they, if what they wanted was to pull onto their balance sheet a bond with a market price of 620, all the Fed needed to do was to create $620 of new reserves to go buy it in the open market. But instead, what they did is they created $1,000 of new reserves to lend to some bank to effectively take the $620 asset onto their books. Okay, so the Fed's overpaying. So in a sense, when you say, well, what's the cost or what's the downside of that? Well, they're creating more money than they need to. So in a sense, it's making all dollar holders that much poorer. That's where it's coming from, right? If there were no downside, then the Fed should just tell everybody, hey, that pencil on your desk will lend you a billion dollars with that pencil as collateral. They could just do that to everybody. We all be billionaires. So obviously that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. And what, why? Well, because geez, if we all had a billion dollars, prices would go way up. And, you know, that, that's why. So it's not as extreme. But if the Fed's going around lending $1,000 for assets that are only worth 620 the problem is that they're effectively showering more money into the pockets of those people than they need to. Okay. Now, another problem too is if they want to unwind the operation. Okay, so people are saying, oh, well, no, if they just hold on to the assets until maturity, okay, fine. There's still the, the problem I just went over, but what if price inflation is worse than they anticipated? You know, what if they need to suck reserves out of the system? Now they're going to not be able to do that as readily. If they paid a thousand for an asset that right now only has a market price of 620, and the thought is, well, no, that's fine. We'll just sit around and wait eight years. And that thing will grow in value to a thousand. The treasury will then pay the Fed a thousand and retire this thing. And so the, you know, that's how we're going to suck the thousand dollars out of the system. Is we'll just wait till maturity. Again, you still got that extra four hundred or three eighty sloshing around for eight years or whatever. I said, making prices higher than they otherwise would have been for that duration until it finally gets vacuumed out. But what happens in the meantime if no, the Fed wants to accelerate the process? It can. Right, so it created $1,000 to take the $620 asset out of its balance sheet. If it now wants to unwind it a year from now, it can. If it sells that asset, which let's say it's risen in value to $670, now all it can do is absorb $670 of reserves out of the system. Whereas if it had been more frugal and only lent up to the actual market value of the collateral, then it wouldn't have lent so much into the system and it would be able to unwind the operation. I mean, it's the same basic problem as what happens when the Fed, I mean, because the Fed bought a bunch of treasuries too. So the Fed also is sitting on humongous unrealized losses. And that's something I've been talking about since like 2009 or 2010 is, you know, among other problems is the Fed has to raise interest rates, I was saying, since it's been loading up on bonds during the, the rounds of quantitative easing at rock bottom interest rates. Now, when the Fed starts tightening the value of its bonds on this portfolio drop. And that's a problem if they need to sell off assets to suck reserves out of the system. Okay. So 
the Fed also is in this buzz. So they're just making their situation worse. If they're not even buying bonds and they're having interest rates rise, if they're buying bonds ex post that have seen their value drop below par and the Fed's paying par for them effectively, then that's just, it's sort of like, basically what it's doing is it's taking the mistakes of the banks and making it as if the Fed made those mistakes in the past. That's kind of what, that's one way to think about it. Okay, I will stop there. Like I said, you could take a lot of these things down further, but why don't we stop there? It's a good point. George Gammon in particular, I've noticed, he's been saying how he thinks what they're trying to do is organize these bailouts, if that's what you want to call them, these moves to push a central bank digital currency on everybody. And I think he makes a strong case for that. I'm going to, with the new podcast Founders Forum that I'm doing with Cole Snell, some of you may have heard of that. We're going to actually be interviewing George soon in a few days as of when I'm recording this. So I'm going to bring that up with him at the time. But again, it's an interesting case he's making to say, basically by yelling and FDIC and everybody coming in and saying, oh, don't worry, we're going to keep everybody whole, all the depositors, that he's seeing it as, a, as like a three-stage process by which everybody, because they're worried about the safety of their money in the banking system, ends up just holding claims issued by the Federal Reserve that you know, they're making good, and then it'd be easy just to turn that into a digital currency. All right, so I, I'm not going to get into it right now. I would have to think through some of the logistics of it. But anyway, I saw George is the rebel capitalist, if that's how you know him. He's always got the cap on this and the Fed. So anyway, he was making that case on Twitter, and I thought, huh, there's something there. So not letting a crisis go to waste. Thanks for your attention, everybody. I will give some links. I'll try to find, there were a lot of good articles just given a lot of the details about like SVP and, you know, what the duration was in their bond portfolio because there were some nuances that I blew through about how they classified their bonds, whether they were going to hold them to maturity or not, things like that. So there were some nuances that are interesting if you want to go check it out. I'll try to find at least one article like that and post it. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 264 to see those links. So thanks, everybody, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.